Turn to, uh, in your Bibles, to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. How many know that uh, we have a ministry of reminding? Ministry of repetition. We hear the same things, right? It's not a bad thing, is it? No. Okay. Given the economic downturn and the threat to our society and certainly to individual people, it's... uh, I thought it a worthy exercise to rehearse and review some things we've already basically know, and uh, but sometimes we kind of let them drift away, and um, so we're talking about uh, the uh, sermon on the amount. <laughs> Actually, we're talking about attitude because it really boils down to that. And uh, in deference to those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, uh, it, it always happens. You know, the pastor's going to preach on money or some related subject, and no doubt, it's my first time in the church, what are they talking about, right? Money. So bear with us, if you would. In this particular passage, David uh, is extolling God and, and praising God and acknowledging God's sovereignty over everything. This is incredibly important for all of us. Though we may know that, the question is, do we actively and on a continuous basis acknowledge his sovereignty and we find comfort there and strength and encouragement that God is indeed sovereign? Nothing nothing misses his notice. Nothing is out of control in that sense, though sometimes life feels out of control, doesn't it? But God is perfectly in control of everything. He is working all things together for the good of those who what? Love him and are called according to his purpose. We've got to bear that in mind. Keep that in the forefront of our thinking. We don't understand things. We don't understand why this happened. What's going on there? The the issue isn't asking the why questions. The issue is asking what, Lord, what would you have me do? What is your will in this situation? God, you have clearly orchestrated these things. You have clearly, sovereignly ordained this, that, or the other thing. I, 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 I don't even argue that point. But now the question is, if I find myself here, what is it that you would have me do? Now, if you don't know the word of God, you're not going to know what to do. You're going to be clueless. So it's imperative that we continue to rehearse the truth and, uh, and so that it becomes absolutely just... just a non-argument for us about in terms of what to do. So I posed a question to you last week, and it's a a kind of a general question, and uh, it's actually a statement. Christians are the very best money managers on the earth. Now, yeah, most of us would like to say yes, true, because I think you would agree with me that Christians ought to be the very best money managers. Christians ought to be the very best employers. They ought to be the very best employees. They ought to be the very best in, in terms of their role, uh, uh, role uh, husbands and wives. And we, we ought to evidence that we are on top of it in every area of our life. But tragically, we're not. We're not much really, uh, for the most part, uh, most Christians today are, are not much different from the world. We, we've come out of the world and we 
we bring the world with us to some matter, some degree. We always carry baggage into the church with us. And I think tragically what happens is for many, many Christians today is, is we settle for a view of Christianity that says, well, just gonna, I just have to come to church and be moral. When, when being a Christian is far more than that. Being a Christian is being holy because God is holy. And being holy doesn't mean that you make yourself holy. It means that you submit yourself to God, you trust him, you walk by faith, and he makes you holy. He changes your life. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about something new, and one of the, one of the dynamics I suggested was that uh, you do the possible thing, let him do the impossible thing. Trust him to do the impossible. Jane did the possible thing. Randy did the possible thing. And God did the impossible. So again, all of that to underscore the fact that tragically, Christians in, in many quarters in, in the world today, in the country today, and even in our society, are, are really not much different from the world. And in that sense, they are not the very best money managers in the world. And given that, four things become obvious. The first is that we are not reaching our potential when it comes to financial stewardship. The church has tremendous potential, would you agree? Tremendous potential in lots of areas. Tremendous potential at impacting our culture and our society. And yet we, we, we remain quiet or we, we quietly participate with the world in the world's ways. We are to be salt and light, are we not? Salt flavors, doesn't it? It makes a difference. It keeps from, uh, it's a preservative. It creates thirst. It brings, we're to be, we're to be light. We're, we're, to, we're to make a difference where it's dark in the world. And the church, by and large, is not reaching its potential. And this is across the board. And, 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 and one of the areas is, is finances. Secondly, we need to do a better job on, of teaching on money and financial issues. This is, a, this, is a, this is a tragedy, and I think you'll agree with me. Most, most pastors, most churches do not do a good job on teaching on this matter. And the reason is uh, most pastors are afraid of being criticized or the blowback that they typically get from some quarters in the church about, well, you're teaching on money. I'm already getting it. People are already complaining that I'm teaching on this subject. And, and, and we don't even do a good enough job of doing it. Is money significant? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You can't live without it. Should we be excellent money managers? Yeah. Absolutely. Thirdly, Many Christians today are in some serious debt. And, and we do financial counseling in the church, and we have a benevolence program for people who need help. And, and, and part of that is, is some financial counseling to get a, a good bearing and, and handle on, on where they are and where they need the help and how to give them some skills and encourage them. But we're discovering that there are more people today in our church who are in some, ser some serious debt. And we need, to, we need to address that. And I'm convinced we haven't seen the worst of this economic downturn. I'm convinced that it's going to get worse. And 
you know, they're saying peace, 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 and it's going to get worse. That means probably very many more people are going to be experiencing difficulties. People get laid off. I talked to a, a, a woman last night whose company laid off a, a ton of people, and she just missed the cut. Fourthly, we need... We, we, we are not nearly as good at managing our money and our resources as we think we are. Most of us think, I'm doing pretty good. Can you always learn more? Can you be a little wiser? Absolutely. Absolutely. The average Christian doesn't really believe that he or she has a problem when it comes to finances. It's just like the alcoholic. I don't have a problem. Or the person who's immersed in pornography. They just can't see that they have a problem. And they live in this world of illusion. When everyone else sees you've got a serious problem here. In this passage in First Chronicles chapter 29, King David acknowledged God's sovereignty over everything, over everything. And if we are to be better stewards over everything God has given us, including our life, right, Randy? Including our life. What needs to change is our attitude, and more particularly in our context this morning, our attitude towards money. We cannot afford to be cavalier about it. We cannot afford to be wasteful. We cannot afford to be inattentive to the details of what we do with the money that God entrusts to us. Let's just read this passage. It's a rich passage. And, and in fact, the song, one of the songs we sang earlier really does reflect some of the language of, of, of this prayer of praise from David. Verse 10, David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Church, do we give him thanks and praise his glorious name? Let's do that. Let's, let's tell him thank you. God, we thank you. We give you thanks. We praise your glorious name. Out loud, out loud. Say it. Lord, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Amen. Acknowledge him in the terms of his greatness and his sovereignty. And then verse 14, says, David says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And this congregation has always been very, very generous. Who, who am I, Lord, is to be the pastor of this great people and, and for us to give as generously as we have in the past? Notice he says this. Everything comes from you. We have given you only what comes from your hand. God, you've blessed us. And we return back generously. And the more generously we give back, you continue to pour into us. God, we acknowledge you. Amen, church? Amen. So we, now we've already seen, last week I pointed out to you three lies that appear to be the truth, right? 
and three truths that appear to be lies. What was the first lie that seems to be the truth? Yeah, the devil tries to convince us that all the church talks about is what? Money. Now, again, this is for the benefit of our visitors this morning. It's a lie. The church doesn't talk enough about it. The church doesn't instruct us. Do you know that there's more, the Bible talks more about money than it does about heaven and hell? You would think that it'd be talking more about heaven and hell than money. Why is that? Why is it talking more about money? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And God knows that we need to know, we need to address this because money is so critical and so important to us. So the first lie uh, is that the devil tries to deceive us and say that all the church ever talks about is money. It sounds like the truth, but it's not. The second lie is we, again, learn that the devil tries to get us to believe that money and things can, what? Satisfy us. There isn't a single one of us in this room that hasn't, hasn't been in, that, uh, in the midst of that dynamic at some point, and maybe even now. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being what? Content in whatever circumstance I find myself. But the lure of things, the lure of stuff, the lure, the lure of more and more, I'll be, I'll be really satisfied. I'm not satisfied right now because I don't have thus and such. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want great gain? Seek after God. Put his kingdom first. Be content. Be content. The third lie we learned is that the devil again tries to convince us that it's our money and I can do with it whatever I want. Whoa, that's a good one, isn't it? Or, to extend that, it's my life and I can do with it whatever I want. So there. We can't. If you truly are a Christian, you cannot. It's just not your life to do with as you please. It's a life that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And it's a life that is to be consecrated to him. And you cannot live on an island. You cannot be antisocial. You have to reach out to others. You cannot serve God on your own terms. Amen? (laughs) All right. We also learn that God is the one who determines how much money we have and that if he so chooses, he can dry up that source of income at a moment's notice. Again, this falls under the purview of his sovereignty. No, 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 my boss is the one who determines how much money. No, 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 it's God who determines how much money you have. He, remember, he is, he is sovereign over everything. He can turn the heart of the king. He can move people. He can turn the heart of your boss and cause your boss to give you a raise, or he can cause your boss to fire you. All right? It's God. We learned that giving to God is the only way out of our financial problems. Now, I know people want to debate that with me. I've had people already debate that with me. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, giving to God is the only way out of our financial problems. It doesn't sound like the truth, but it is the truth. Who's sovereign? Who controls the spigot? God. Who rewards faithfulness? 
God. It's the only way. Now, the first step on the road to being faithful stewards, how many want to be faithful stewards? The first step on the road to becoming faithful stewards is to change our attitude. Change our attitude and acknowledge his sovereignty, not only in our finances, but over every single area of our life. God, we, I bow before you. You're sovereign. All this is yours. I trust you. Everything comes from your hand. That has to be our attitude, and we must understand that he is bad or good. He's good. How many really believe that? He's really good. How many think he's unfair? How many think he's mean to you? How many, has, he mean, has he been mean to you? God, why are you being mean to me? Why did you do this to me? He is good. All the time. Thank you very much. All right. So the first step is we acknowledge his sovereignty. And that has to be a new attitude for us. The next step on our road to becoming faithful stewards is that we need to be aware of and avoid the subtlety of, what do you think? Debt. We need to be aware of and avoid the subtlety of debt. Have you ever read the tiny fine print on the low interest rate credit card offers? I mean, I seriously sat down and read it with a magnifying glass. It's small print for a reason. You know, we have a saying, read the small print. No one ever reads the small print. We just hope that it won't come back to bite us, right, when we sign on the dotted line. When you read that fine print, you find out that the end of the introductory period on that particular credit card offer Simply, if you fail to make the minimum monthly payment or just at the end of the offer, the rate goes from real small to real big. You know, from 2% to 16 to 20, 22%. Most people don't, don't read it. And then they get their credit card bill and go, what is this? Well, the low rate was only for the introductory period. You never read it. Or you failed to make that payment. Boom, it just exploded. If you keep a balance. If you keep a balance, do you think the credit card companies want you to keep a balance? Yes, they do. Do they want you to pay it off every month? No, they want you to keep a balance. And if you keep a balance, which is is what they want you to do, guess what? Who's going to make a lot of money off you? They are, the credit card companies. Do you know that you would, you would actually make more money, save more money if you didn't even use your credit card, even if you pay it off at the end of the month? I had a, I had a couple come talk to me uh, 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 Friday night after the service. They said, well, we pay it off every month. We don't ever carry a balance. I said, you're still losing money. Well, how come? I said, because using a credit card is really easy. You don't realize how much extra you're spending just using a credit card, even though you pay it off at the end of the month. I said, if you're trying to pay your house down, if you, and, and you know, because that, that was a question also about, you know, what about debt and, and going to debt and buying a house and having a mortgage? I said, yeah, that's fine. But make sure that you're not spending more than you can afford in terms of that house. A lot of people have gotten in upside down 
on these low interest loans and these arms and things, and, and, just, and they're losing their houses. But assuming you get into a house at a reasonable, at a reasonable rate and, and you can afford it, you can pay it off quicker if you pay cash for everything. In other words, if I don't have $40 in my pocket, I'm not going to spend that, right? But if I got a credit card, see, Jane says, well, if it goes over $40, then I can put it rest on my credit card. Did she want to put it on her credit card? No. But God graciously allowed her to just keep it $40. Isn't that cool? Am I making sense? Is this make my, do my musings make sense here too? When you read these credit applications, notice, nowhere, nowhere on the credit application, I would defy you to find it, nowhere on the credit application do they mention or even use the word debt. It's not even there. You can't find it. Debt is subtle. It is subtle, and those who try to encourage us to get into debt are subtle themselves and even sometimes sinister. That's why you need to always read the fine print before you foolishly pursue debt of any kind. I want to suggest to you that God's will for us is to be debt-free. Is that a fair statement? God's will for us is to be debt-free. His will is not for us to be in bondage of any kind. He has come to set us free. He's not come that we get back into bondage to anything. Debt, drugs, alcohol, um, perversions, nothing. Deuteronomy chapter 28. You've got to read this. This is a great passage. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 12 through 14. Now, this is Moses is addressing Israel, and he is uh, rehearsing a second time the law given to Israel. Now, this is just prior to going in to possess the promised land. So he's reminding them of all that God had said to them prior. He's reminding them of the law. That's important context. Verse 12, he says, The Lord will open the heavens the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. Is that a great promise? The Lord will do this. Not only that, he says, you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. He goes on and he says, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. How many would rather be the tail than the head? You know what he's talking about. You're not going to be the butt. <laughs> no one wants to be the butt of a joke, right? He's going to make you the head. He says, if you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. God's law is the way to life. His word is the way to life. Follow his word. It's designed to lead us to life so that we're not always at the bottom. He says, do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today. 
to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Don't be distracted. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. He says, keep your eyes fixed where? On Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus himself says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things he'll take care of. This is the truth. God has designed it this way. His will for us is not to be in debt. God does not want us to be in debt. He would rather we be lenders instead of borrowers. Now imagine that. We are so accustomed to borrowing rather than being people who are the head, people who are in the lead, people who really have the capacity to lend. Listen to Psalm 37, verse 26. David says here, The righteous are always generous and lend freely. Who's always generous? So how do you know you're righteous? Your life is marked by what? Generosity. Generosity. Generosity of your time. Generosity of your resources, generosity of your, of your, of your efforts, or your abilities, your talent. You're generous. That's what marks you as being a righteous person. I'm more gen- because what? God is righteous, right? Is God generous? Right. And then he says this. And their children will be what? How many want their children to be blessed? How many want your kids to be blessed? Then what should you do? Be generous. Be generous. Psalm 112, verse 5. Again, the same sentiment. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. So if you're selfish, if you're a miser, if you're fearful, guess what? Good is not going to come to you. What's going to come to you? Difficulty, tragedy, pride. Why? Because God wants to pry that hand open. (laughs) Teach you to be generous. Because why? Because he wants to bless you. It's not punishment. Go with him. Trust him. Learn to live by faith. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus says this. Hate your enemies. Do harm to them. No, this is, this is absolutely contrary to our human nature, isn't it? You have to be truly a born-again Christian. You have to be someone whose life is so changed and so different that these words actually make sense to you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Do good to your enemies. Paul says in another place, if uh, quoting the Psalms, uh, quoting Proverbs, he says, if, uh, if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? You feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, what should you do? You give him something, you give him something to drink. God! They don't deserve it. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. They don't deserve it? What is it that you don't deserve? God's grace and goodness, right? Yeah, but if I do that, they're just going to take advantage of me. So, I thought we were supposed to be living sacrifices. No one takes advantage of you. Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down. 
Oh, am I supposed to just let them walk all over me? Yes. <laughs> Love your enemies, do good to them. Lend to them, expecting to get back all that plus interest. What does he say? Without expecting. Without expecting to get anything back. To my enemy? Does Jesus really mean this, do you think? Are you sure? He just, isn't he just spouting some idealistic kind of stuff that no one could do? And, you know, doesn't really mean it. What do you think? How many think he means it? Some of you aren't voting. How many, think, how many don't think he means it? How many aren't sure? How many don't want to commit? <laughs> now notice this. Then, see, once you've done this, then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Your reward will be great. See, this is really living by faith, isn't it? This is what he says. And truth be no man, it's a scary thing to do. But the more you say, okay, okay, this is what you say to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Solomon says it another way. He says what? Acknowledge him in all of your ways. Trust him with your whole heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And he's going to make your path straight. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to what? Love one another. Beloved, I think it's very clear, and it ought to be very clear to us, God does not want us to be in debt. He wants us to be lenders instead of what? Borrowers. Lenders and not borrowers does not describe the average Christian today. Would you agree? And yet God said, I want you to be free. I want you to be free so that you can lend to many and borrow from none. Now this may be a huge paradigm shift for for many people, but that's the reality. We all need to get to the place where we truly hate debt. I mean, we really hate it. Why? Because debt represents bondage. It simply represents bondage. Just imagine. Just imagine what it would be like to be totally out of debt. Totally out of debt. That your paycheck is not pre-obligated already to somebody or something. You know, it's like, Man, I got no wiggle room. You know, I get the paycheck and boom, as quick as it comes in, it's gone. But if you're totally out of debt, just imagine more money than bills. What a novel idea. Isn't that kind of exciting? If you had more money and, you, and, 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 and less and less and less and less debt, you would really, truly be free to give to God the way you always wanted to. There isn't a Christian around, truly a Christian, who at some point in his or her life and experience hadn't said to themselves, you know, I would really love to be able to give more. Isn't that true? But why don't we? 
because we have this debt load that we're carrying that doesn't allow us to. I mean, after all, God says, if you give, it shall be given to you. It, it, it will be. It'll be given to you. So logically, we say, well, the more I give, then the more I'm going to get back. And the more I get back, the more I get to give. What an awesome thing to be that kind of conduit of God's resources. There is nothing more exciting in our life than to be able to give. Isn't that true? Amen. More blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. And truly, you understand. how When, when you give some, and the great example is a parent gives something to their child. It's something the child really wanted and had their heart set on, and the parent just has all this buildup and all this joy, can hardly wait for the kid to open the present. That's the way God is with us. Just imagine, totally out of debt. You could be free to give to God like you always wanted to. You could put money into savings. You could start earning interest rather than paying it. You could help others, really. You could take a vacation, a really nice vacation. You could fix up the house. Heck, you might even be able to buy a house. What a novel thing that would be, huh? And quit paying rent. Isn't that exciting? Think of what any church, think of our church. Think of what we could accomplish if we were all debt-free. How many would love to be debt-free? Totally debt-free. Think of what we could accomplish as a church. I talked to you earlier about the dollar missions fund. Just imagine, uh, minimum, missions budget, a million dollars a year to support our missionaries. We have more and more young people coming up in the church who God is calling to the mission field in one way or another. And, and that's exciting. And... But they, they need to be supported. What better place than their own local home church to support them? Amen? Amen? And if we were all debt-free, look what we could do. Imagine how we could impact this world. God already gives us the people. He turns their hearts. He preps them for ministry. They're going to school. They're getting trained. They're getting educated. And it just remains, how, how am I going to be supported? There's an outstanding book. It's called Debt-Free Living by Larry Burkett. Some of you know the name. Maybe you even have the book in your library. He says this in, in, in his book. He says, regardless, regardless of how it seems today, debt is not normal in any economy and should not be normal for God's people. Now, we think debt's normal. We live in a, in a country that is trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in debt, and the average citizen doesn't realize it. Our economy is like a house of cards. It's going to come down any minute. And people just don't know. He says, this is not normal. He says, we live in a debt-ridden society that is now virtually dependent on a constant expansion of credit to keep the economy going. In other words, you've got to f- keep feeding the monster. He said, that's a symptom of a society no longer willing to follow God's directions. As Paul says in Romans 1, that, that we have thrown off 
We, we no longer think it worthwhile to even retain the knowledge of God. And we are sanitizing every social institution in this country from the very name and mention of God. Why? Who, who, who's at fault here? Who's at fault? The church. Because we're just kind of going with the flow. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that the devil leads us into debt so he can keep us in bondage and keep us from doing great things for God and for his kingdom? We need to change our attitude about debt. And to do this, we need to learn some biblical principles. And here are seven biblical principles about debt that are important for us. Number one. Going into debt makes you a servant to someone else other than God. You become a servant to somebody else. Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Jesus said again in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. We saw it on the video earlier. No man can serve two masters. You can serve money or you can serve God. One or the other. You've got to make a choice. And most people today are choosing, sadly, and many Christians are choosing, sadly, to serve money. When you borrow, instead of God being your Lord and God being your boss, someone else is calling the shots. And when you don't make the payments, they're going to call some shots that you're not going to like. Number two, it is clearly a sin if you borrow and do not repay. Psalm 37, verse 21, the wicked borrow and do not repay. Who is it that borrows and doesn't repay? The wicked. But the righteous give generously. The reason the righteous can give generously is that they are not in debt. Number three, the Bible warns that it's better not to go into debt. Proverbs 17, 18. Now, this is a tricky verse, so pay attention with me. This is from the NIV translation. A man lacking in judgment strikes hands in pledge and puts up security for his neighbor. Now, have you heard that verse? And we use that. We say, well, you know, don't put up security for your neighbor. Don't sign for your neighbor. But the verse literally translated doesn't actually say that. Literally, the verse translated goes this way. The man lacking in judgment strikes hands in pledge, makes an agreement for debt in the presence of his neighbor. So the NIV translates it this way, and some of the other translations are the same. It's, it's, it's not actually describing the one who goes into debt for his neighbor, it's describing going into debt and your neighbor knows about it. Would you rather your neighbor know that you're, you're up to your ears and eyeballs in debt or that you're debt free? Debt free. Why? Because it's embarrassing, let alone you are not a respectable person. How, how many of us think about people just, just horribly in debt? Their own foolishness. We go, golly. But you know someone who's clearly out of debt, manages their money well, 
those people are what? Automatically respectable in your sight. Isn't that true? Number four, the longest term of debt God's people took on, this is Israel, was how many years? Seven years. Seven years. That was the longest God allowed them to, to, to carry debt, to hold debt, to be in debt. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1, God said this, At the end of every seven years you must cancel debts. Verse 2, Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. Wouldn't that be cool? Every seven years, man, you get start over. Zero balance. That's the economy of Israel. Why? Because that kept Israel flourishing and it kept the concentration of land and property from just into the hands of the few. They canceled their debts every seven years. Now, it's interesting, I think. God doesn't say that, that uh, you should never, never have or, 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 or uh, never make a loan. But he does say, now is the time you should cancel it. Now is the time you should cancel it. The Bible doesn't forbid borrowing. It doesn't forbid debt. It simply just says there's a whole lot better way to live without it. Number five, you are not in control of your own future. How many know that? Have you ever caught yourself saying, hey, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm going here. I'm going to be, be there. You always want to amend that by saying, Lord willing. <laughs> Lord willing. See you tomorrow. Lord willing. What? That's an acknowledgement that I don't know. There's no guarantee. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. You don't know that you're going to have more money down the road to pay for what you're going to, into debt, going to debt for today. Isn't that true? You can't possibly know that, but the salesman will tell you you can. You can afford this. Look. Beloved, we're not in control of our own future. We have no guarantees in that sense. Number six. When you go into debt... You are asking someone else other than God to meet your needs. Think about that. When you go into debt, you're asking somebody else to meet your needs rather than God. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, what does Paul say? Anybody know that verse? Philippians 4, 19. Anybody know the verse? I hear some mumbling. He says, and my God shall supply or meet all your needs. My God's going to do this according to what? His riches in glory in Christ. Now he's saying that to the Philippians. You have to understand the context. Because a lot of times we lift that verse out of context and, and we just spout it. But the context is very, very important to understand. The Philippians were one of the Macedonian churches that Paul references in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. How many know that passage, right? He talks about the Macedonian churches. These people had given 
incredibly generously and sacrificially to Paul in his support while he's in prison. And these people were dirt poor. And to comfort them and encourage them that in the, in the face of, of their giving according to their ability and beyond their ability, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, don't worry. Don't worry. God knows what you've done. He knows how you've given. He says, and my God will meet all your needs. Wouldn't that be comforting? And so again, I want to suggest to you that God will meet your needs. You don't have to go into debt. When we go into debt, we're just simply trusting the bank rather than God. Number seven, when you go into debt and you mortgage your future, you affect your whole family. You affect your whole family. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. Man, that is a scary thought, right? Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. There are lots of people today who everything's evaporated, huh? They trust in their riches, apparently. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. He who brings trouble on his family will inherit only wind. Now he equates trusting in your riches, going into debt with bringing trouble on your family. You will inherit only wind and the fool will be servant to the wise. I think it's clear, don't you? Debt is not a good thing for us, and it does not represent God's perfect will for our lives. Amen to that one? Now, to help you have a right attitude about debt, think of debt this way. D-E-B-T, right? Think of it this way. Dumb explanation for buying things. If you have to use debt to buy something, in your mind, think of these words, D-E-B-T. Don't even buy that. If you look up the word debt in a synonym finder or a thesaurus, here's what you find. Now listen to all of the expressions that mean debt. Obligation. Encumbrance, in the red, pound of flesh, arrears, inability to pay, bilked, bound, beholden, up to one's ears, over one's head, mortgage to the hilt, in the poverty trap, unable to keep the wolf from the door, hard up, Beaten down, financially embarrassed, strapped, stripped, fleeced, busted. Debt. Debt is not good. Debt is not good. There are only five things you can do with money. Five things. Only five things you can do with money. Number one, you can give it. Number two, you can save it. Number three, you can invest it. Number four, you can lend it. Number five, you can spend it. There's only five things you do with money. So why blow it on getting into debt and losing it through paying interest to somebody else? 
Doesn't make sense, does it? Now, you may be sitting there thinking, oh, I am way, way in debt. I am more than flat busted. I am more than being in the poverty trap. I've got the wolf blowing down my door right now. I don't know that I can ever get out. I don't see any way possible. Can you get out of debt? Absolutely. Absolutely. Regardless of who you are, regardless of how much debt you're in, you can get out of debt. You just have to want to. There's a man in our church in the service this morning shared with me that uh, prior to he and his wife getting married, they were $40,000 in debt. And they got married and determined to pay off that debt. That debt was paid off in a year and a half. Oh, yeah, they probably make $150,000 a year. I, I don't think so. They were just determined to get out of debt. You have to want to, and you have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get there. Now, how do you get out of debt? Here's some simple principles. Here's how you get out of debt. Number one, you have to make an irrevocable commitment to God and to yourself that you are going to get out of debt. This is one, I am not going back on this commitment. It is absolutely irrevocable. God, I'm committing to you. I'm getting out of debt. I'm committing to myself. And you not only make that commitment to God and yourself, but you tell other people about it, people who know you. So that why? So that you are what? Now accountable. And, and they can help you. They can encourage you. They can remind you. How are you doing on your debt? I'm getting there. So first of all, you have to make an irrevocable commitment to God and to yourself to get out of debt. Number two, don't take on any more debt. Duh. Don't take on any more debt. That's it. I'm not borrowing one more penny. If you have to use debt to buy something, say to yourself, don't even buy that. Remember? Number three, put God first in your giving. Put God first in your giving. Now, what does that mean? It means a minimum, a minimum of the first 10%. Say, oh, that's that's legalistic. No, it's not. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of dependence upon God. God, I just have this much, but you want the first ten. Oh, can I just make it two? Give the first tenth to him. How many fingers do we have? This is how they came up with that, by the way. Even the pagan cultures in, in, in prior to the time of Abraham, even the pagan cultures tithed, if you will, because they figured one-tenth was the very minimum they could give. That's the very minimum. So God says, okay, give me the minimum. What's the minimum? The, tenth. the first tenth. That means off the top. Put God first in your giving. What does it say? Acknowledge him and his kingdom and in his righteousness first, and all these other things he'll take care of? See, the first fruits belong to him. If we're not doing that, Malachi says that we are guilty of robbing God, and I promise you, you will never get out of debt. God will frustrate you. Number four, develop a written plan. 
Develop a written plan. Now, what, what, what other word could we use to describe a written plan? A budget. A budget. Oh, no. I, gotta live, I never lived on a budget in my life. Now you're going to. Get a budget. If you don't know how to prepare a budget, we've got lots of people in the church who help you. See your district pastor. They'll help you prepare a budget and commit to live on the basis of that budget. Stick to it. Number five, set an attainable time frame to get out of debt. Now, Larry Burkett in his book says anyone can be out of debt in seven years. If you don't believe that and your debt is, you, you can't see that, and if it's unrealistic to you, then at least set a time frame, at least set a goal for yourself. And you can say, I'm going to be out of debt by such and such a date. Mark it on your calendar. Tell somebody. Make that commitment. If you don't set a goal, you'll never do it. And you do whatever it takes to reach that goal. Amen? Number six, you may have to adjust your lifestyle. Oh, darn. You may have to, you may have to downsize. How many love to eat out? Come on, every hand ought to go up. We all love to eat out, man, especially with our wives. <laughs> well, maybe you just don't eat out anymore. It'd be amazing how much money you save. You may not eat out. How many love to go shopping? <laughs> yeah, look at those hands going. No more shopping trips. You don't shop at Costco. You know, Costco is the impulse buyers. <laughs> I, 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 I promise you, we go to Costco. I get to that cash register, and, the, and the, the guy says so much money. I said, I just came in for a couple items. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You may have to downsize in lots of areas. Some people actually may have to move. Because they can't afford to live here. This is an expensive part of the country to live in. Southern Cal, the South Bay. Just rents are just insane. Now, I know they're coming down, but they're, they're going to go right back. You know, whatever goes up comes down. Whatever goes down comes back up again. We've had people in our church actually take this to heart. They, they, they finally said, you know what? We cannot afford to live here. We're moving. And the downside to that, unfortunately, is it's hard to find another church, especially when you're so ensconced in this one, right? Brett and Adele are here from Fresno, lovely downtown Fresno. They come down a couple times a year to visit with us and get a Hope Chapel injection. <laughs> but that's a common, common complaint, sadly, that people who've been involved in the church and they've developed relationships here and and served here and, and been part of the fellowship, they move away. It is very, very, very difficult to find anything comparable to what we experience. And we just simply don't realize what we have when we have it doing. But you have to adjust your lifestyle if you're going to get out of debt. Number seven, begin to systematically pay off all your debts. That means start with the smallest ones first. Pay the smallest ones off and then take that money and add it to the next ones. Pay those off and add that money to the next ones. And you get this snowball effect so that before you know it, your debts are going to be paid off. But you have to be disciplined about it. 
Beloved, we should be committed to becoming debt-free, all of us, and to raising up an army of people who are absolutely, completely, and permanently debt-free. Amen to that? Would you agree with me? We can do it, I believe, with all my heart. With God's help and for his glory, we can all be debt-free. I believe there's no question, no question at all, that God wants us out of debt, and I believe that there is no question God is willing to do whatever it takes to help us get out of debt. I know that, absolutely, because you and I entered this world with a great debt, didn't we? A great debt of sin, and God knew that wasn't good, so he sent his son to pay off that debt so that we could never, we could never pay it off in our whole lifetime, but he paid it off. He wants us debt-free. And Jesus says in John 8, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And beloved, there's no freedom and certainly no feeling in the world like being free from the debt of sin. And the next best feeling is to be out, to be free from the debts of this world. God will help us. You do the possible, he'll do the impossible. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the confidence you give us. Lord, you call us to trust you and live by faith. That simply means, though we can't see you, we believe that you live. We believe that you love us. We believe that your word is true. We follow, Lord, your instructions for life. And, Lord, our lives are ultimately going to be strengthened and blessed. I pray, Lord, this morning that all of us would take these words to heart. And if there's those of us this morning who are in debt, God, that we would repent of that and seek your face and follow your clear instructions about these matters. We love you this morning. We give you thanks, being our God, and for saving us, setting us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, church? Amen. Share one thing with your neighbor you learned this morning, one thing that's really insignificant to you. Secondly, if it's appropriate, turn to your neighbor, give your neighbor a holy hug and a kiss. And thirdly, whisper a word of encouragement to your neighbor if you do that. Then let's stand together and praise God before we dismiss.